Good evening. Welcome. Good evening. Uh, I hope you're all getting settled in. Uh, this is Olivia Georgia. I'm executive director of Cities Living Laboratory and I'm so thrilled uh, to welcome you this evening, uh, especially since many of you are relatively or entirely new to Cities Living Laboratory. Um, and, uh, and I know that the reason why you're with us, especially the new people, uh, is because of our terrific board members um, and uh, event committee members. And I'd like to, uh, I hope he's here, uh, to just uh, make special note and thanks to uh, the chairman of our events committee, Ray Gastel. Um, and um, I'm sure many of you know him, uh, formerly the director of planning for the city of Pittsburgh and now the head of Remaking Cities Institute at the Carnegie Mellon University. Tonight we will have uh, a number of our board members with us and I just want to acknowledge their uh, support uh, and uh, that includes Tom Bishop, uh, Stuart Pickett, Sabina Marks, uh, Jeff Leiden, uh, Zach Youngerman, uh, and of course, Marlon Blackwell <laughs> and Charles McKinney, who will be, both be presenting this evening, uh, along with a few committee members, Andrea Miller, and Francine Monaco, and Spafford Robbins. Since there are so many new people, uh, I wanted to just spend a very short a couple of minutes uh, telling you a little bit about City is Living Laboratory. Uh, Call was founded about 10 years ago uh, by Mary Miss to support initiatives led by artists and designers uh, in collaboration with scientists, other experts and communities to address the most pressing issues of our time, including climate change, health and equity. Uh, Call's mission and its, uh, and its sheer existence uh, has sprung from Mary's groundbreaking work and her evolving practice, uh, which has been enriched and fortified uh, by multi-sector collaborations. And of course, collaboration is the watchword for our program this evening. Um, in the past 10 years, we have done a lot. Uh, we've brought together over 100 artists with uh, a variety of scientists and ex experts and community members to uh, conduct investigative walks uh, in New York City and in cities across the country. Uh, right now in New York, uh, we are pursuing projects in Chinatown um, focused on uh, its unique food systems and uh, in the Northwest Bronx um, uh, in an effort to advance the daylighting of Tibbetts Brook. Uh, Tibbetts Brook is the source, uh, the largest source of pollution into the Harlem River and New York Harbor. Um, so this daylighting would uh, in very, would mitigate that uh, in a huge way. Um, Major projects led by Mary um, over the past 10 years include uh, the National Science Foundation funded streamlines in Indianapolis uh, along five tributaries of the White River. Streamlines uh, has led to watermarks, um, a citywide uh, water stewardship project in Milwaukee, which Mary has been developing for the past five years. And I'm assuming she's gonna tell us more about it during the conversation. <clears throat> Let me introduce Charles McKinney. Charles is City is Living Laboratory Board of uh, Chairman of the Board. Uh, he is an urban designer and a self-proclaimed practical visionary. Uh, he has served uh, for several decades or had served several decades, uh, Chief of Design and Principal Urban Designer at the New York City Department of Parks. Um, he is known as a forward-thinking, inventive and collaborative leader 
As such, he is extremely well qualified and well tuned to moderate this discussion. So Charles, I hand it to you to take over. That, uh, Marlon designed this library in Gentry, Arkansas, population 4,000 people. And it earned the respect of not only the community, but the American Institute of Architects who awarded him recently their highest award, the gold medal. And you know, he teaches at the University of Arkansas and he teaches his students to look for connections between the social and physical environment. And that's what he's demonstrated in this Early Childhood Development Center, which he is designing with his office and his wife, Ati, for uh, Detroit. Um, and this is Marty. Marty Malock is the uh, director of the University of Arkansas's Resilience Center, where they are responsible for research and outreach for the whole region. And they explore water, food, and community systems for the region. They are creating new ways to understand and design for prosperity while preserving ecological systems upon which our prosperity depends. Mary Miss our, is an environmental artist and the founder and artistic director of our organization. She is dedicated to creating opportunities for artists and designers and scientists to work together. One of her current projects is Waterworks, pictured in these slides. It's an atlas of water for the city of Milwaukee, working with and for the city of Milwaukee. She's making water and stormwater overflow into the ecological system visceral. I'd like to open the conversation with us talking about well, what is it like to collaborate? And, and uh, I know that everybody has a different point of view about that topic. And I guess, Marlon, you could go first. Oh, geez. Oh, Lord. Age before beauty, I guess. So, uh, well, I, I have to say that uh, when I first started, I, you know, I really was kind of based my practice on uh, you know, the fountainhead, to be honest with you, I read the fountainhead when I was young and, you know, I believed every word of it, the Howard Wark, the, the noble savage against the world and, uh, you know, the individual who does everything. And it was only once I really got into out of school and into practice that I realized that, you know, it, it really is a team effort. And uh, there are a host of individuals, both uh, on the design side, but also as well on the stakeholder side uh, and the, uh, you know, and the engineering side, all of that, that, you know, it takes to make a project because of the complexity uh, of what we're dealing with. Uh, and so it's, it's not something that's uh, reserved for a single individual. So yeah, there's a certain kind of degree of bovine scatology that I discovered in the fountainhead that didn't kind of work for me. And, and, and so. So uh, Marlon, I'm going to, uh, butt in here because uh, I think you're frozen, but I'm going to uh, talk about a collaboration we had uh, in the mid-aughts. Uh, Marlon and I worked on a project in Indianapolis and uh, we were working with a landscape architect named Ed Blake. And uh, so Marlon was the architect, I was the artist, and uh, Ed Blake was the 
uh, person kind of introducing us to the land. And I had had some not great collaborations uh, that happened, uh, but that was one of the best ones that, uh, that ever happened. And it wasn't like we were holding hands the whole time. It was rather that everybody was informing the process. So Ed was really reading the land to me and I, I think to Marlon as well. Yes. Um, Marlon was coming in with his responses and I was coming in with my own. And what we came up with, only parts of it got built. But um, I learned so much from that time working together that it was all right. I didn't mind that. I don't know if you've got a different version of that, Marlon. No, I, I think it's, it's collaboration, I think, is, has a lot to do with uh, uh, honesty and transparency. I, I, I remember coming in early on in the, our process working together on the uh, uh, IMA. Sorry, I got knocked off there. But uh, what was uh, sort of fascinating to me about it was you know, coming in with ideas uh, and then having folks outside of your discipline you know, kind of you know, weigh in on that, so with a fresh set of eyes. And I remember uh, which one of the programs was doing an interpretive center in the, in the middle of the woods, and I came up with this brilliant idea, never before done, a glass box in the woods. Uh, and presenting that to Mary and our landscape architect, Ed Blake. And, uh, <laughs> you know, they're both looking at it and, you know, and then, you know, Mary kind of smiled in a kind of wry way and looked up and said, this is very nice, Marlon, but I think it's already been done. And, you know, you might really, really want to think that, rethink this. And so it was back to the drawing board. So, you know, the process, the design process, an iterative process uh, was really reinforced by that. And, and so, we really started creating a great dialogue that was based on uh, a kind of honesty and trust uh, that I, I really hadn't had before uh, at that level. And I, I, I think it was very productive in many ways. Well, let me just say that I probably wouldn't have come up with that kind of remark, except you had already developed the experiential pavilion, another well, true, yeah. which was this quite amazing structure. I was building this walkway that uh, finally landed on the roof or the top of this uh, amazing place that Marlon had come up with. And so getting to the glass box was uh, a little less exciting, but- yeah, uh, a bit of a divergence, I'd say. Yeah. You know, my experience with collaboration is, it's very much like a formal dance. And when you first start, Everyone steps on everyone's feet. Someone's got to lead and someone's got to follow and you got to figure that out. And in a, collabor a good collaboration, as you gain experience, you figure out who's leading and who's following at each particular stanza even. And so you can switch that off pretty quickly. But the dance is the key and it takes experience, it takes time. The more you collaborate, the better you are with collaborating with others. But the, uh, you just have to recognize that there's going to be a point in that starting point where you're just stumbling over each other and you have to be patient with each other in that process. And that's my, one of the, I think the most difficult things for most young professionals to understand is that early process is you're still learning how to do it. And every collaborative partner is going to be different. 
Every collaborative partnership is a different dance. And so understanding that is the key too. Uh, the hardest part, the hardest part is recognizing you're no longer doing this alone. And yeah. that means that if you're, do, if you're trying to do it alone, you're no longer dancing uh, with someone else. You're just out you there know, doing um, your thing. We were, we were kind of talking about this the other day, which was about um, respect and that um, when you have many voices and maybe people who are not designers when we're working with the public, how do you get the most value from people who have so many points of view? It's about relationships and understand, understanding builds trust. Trust isn't agreement, trust is understanding and that takes time. So working with people with different backgrounds, with different experiences, working with uh, especially underrepresented groups or groups that have been historically or even contemporarily disenfranchised uh, with critically important issues, especially in our urban design systems. It's, uh, it's so important that to recognize that even if you're a part of that group, as a designer, you're an elite, you're an outsider, even if you're a member of that group. And so that means that uh, stepping back and letting the group, the, the representatives of the group that you're working with have a strong voice, an adequately strong voice that even if you disagree, your understanding uh, is the key. And I've, I've found that uh, the only times I've been successful working with diverse uh, groups of underrepresented folks to achieve some common vision, it's really when, the, when uh, I had to step back and allow their visions to emerge. And, and it doesn't mean that I always subsumed my vision to theirs and design, but at least I understood their passions and their boundaries and their framings as I brought my vision to them. And so that's the key. That's where the respect comes from. But here's the hard part. There's one variable that cuts across all of it, time. Time it takes to build those relationships. Time it takes to build understanding. Time it takes to build trust. I think too, um, too often we come into a community, I know especially architects into that sort of, uh, community interface where you, you know, you come and you want to develop a laundry list of what do you need? You know, how can we help? And, and uh, you know, you can go into any community uh, underserved or not and ask for the laundry list of what do you need and you'll get a laundry list of needs, but it doesn't necessarily really tell you what you need to know. And I think that the strategy we begin to develop, we're working in St. Louis uh, on the Brickline Greenway from from the arch all the way to Forest Park, uh, both east, west, and north, south, into a, a variety of uh, different socioeconomic uh, conditions. Uh, and we've really taken the approach that to come into different user groups, communities, and stakeholders, and really ask them more about, uh, tell, us, tell us about this, your place, tell us the story, tell us your story. Uh, you know, why, why, why are you here? Why are you still here? What, you know, what is it that you love about the place? Questions like that. So to invite them to tell their own story and in that story, you begin to understand their desires, their hopes, their expectations, and how you might begin to interface and even interpret that in a way that is particularly useful to them rather than you know, just the bullet point of needs. And uh, I, I, I think uh, that has been a much more productive approach. Uh, you know, and, and so that what you're really entering into is a dialogue but it's, it's, it's letting folks tell their story because 
each of them have their own story that is really directly tied to their place. And that's really what you're trying to affect in a positive way. You're talking about time, you're talking about space. Um, at City is Living Lab, what we found to be one of the most effective ways are the walks we take. And uh, you know what it's like to walk with a friend. You just end up chatting, you know, with the person uh, you're walking along with. It's there's something relaxed in that movement. Uh, we usually have an artist talking about the place uh, from their point of view. Uh, the scientist will be reflecting on what he or she is observing there. And in the best of circumstances, the community members are coming forward with their knowledge of the place. So each of those observations is given uh, breathing space. And, um, you know, it's, it's just a, a something that's a beginning of an introduction. We feel like all the things we do take so much time and the walk is just a, a first step. After that, we can do another walk or we could get, do a workshop and get people together and talk, listen to them, hear what their issues are. But uh, I think time is it's one of the biggest uh, things that we like to use, most important things. When you take the walk, people are not, um, it's more informal and people feel more free to speak. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And there's, I think there is opportunity for pause, for reflection. Uh, you know, you're not in the spotlight the whole time, right? Uh, there's something sometimes overly stays or formal about, we're going to have a charrette or a community meeting and then we're going to make a presentation and then you know, it, you know, those things can work, but I always kind of walk, come out of those things feeling like there's something boilerplate about it uh, rather than emergent. And I think this idea of the walk or some kind of informal activity that activates the conversation uh, is, 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 a, is more strategic than one might imagine and, and getting people involved and, and, and bought in. So, um, Marty, uh, I was telling you the story about going to work uh, at the Santo Domingo Pueblo outside of Albuquerque and uh, being there to mentor some uh, artists from that community to do large scale projects. And they were jewelers and potters and, you know, hadn't had that experience before. And uh, just kept going back and kind of being ignored uh, time after time. We kept going back for another visit and another visit. And they, they, nobody wanted to have too much to do with us. And finally, we brought some watercolors that were reflecting some of the things we had been talking about. And these artists could relate to us as artists then. Oh, this is what you're making. This is so it was such an interesting way to, you know, to find a path into what had seemed just an impossible situation. And ended up in a very rich working relationship and, and set of friendships. You found a common language. You found a common language through your expression and art. As an engineer, my challenge is to find a common language with, with my colleagues in 
the design fields, architecture, landscape architecture, even planning, finding that common language and in art across all of it. I mean, the art really is the translator of our passions across many of our disciplines. And that's why it's so important that we expand our design disciplines to include the humanities, not just the, 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 uh, the expressive arts, performance arts, writing, uh, understanding the, uh, the many facets of our expression are key. But that language, especially when we get to the technical issues of design, having that common language is part of that dance I talked about earlier. That's knowing the steps and each other knowing the same steps and using this, and, and that means we have to use the same words that mean the same things. Guess what that takes? Time. Time, time, yeah. So you really have to, I, I think you really have to front load that into the process, right? I mean, it's, it's something uh, that you have to be very careful, I think, to, I mean, as designers, we wanna, we, we have ideas and we have thoughts and we have responses. And one of the most difficult things I find in collaboration is, uh, is to sort of put your pedal, you know, your, your feet on the brakes a little bit, and pump the brakes a little bit to allow other folks to kind of enter into the conversation uh, so that uh, you get, you get buy-in uh, in, in this process of what emerges. And uh, it's difficult. I find it difficult sometimes because you're, you, you know, when you're put in a situation, you're flooded with ideas. You want to get them out there. You want to draw them. You want to communicate in some way. Uh, but I think that the key to it is, is uh, I find, is, is, is not to bring too much to the table, is to keep the table. Um, I have, uh, you know, had these wonderful experiences over the past years um, working with a number of scientists and I have no science background. I have very little math background. And um, it's really been such an interesting uh, and generous uh, situation that I've encountered with these people that I've worked with. And there's generosity on both sides. You know, they don't know the ter territory that I'm coming with. And, uh, and I don't, you know, I don't know theirs and they don't know mine. And there's a, a kind of respect that's, uh, that I've encountered in each of those situations that have allowed me, uh, that has allowed me to do things I never would have imagined being able to do. So for instance, uh, Cynthia Rosenzweig is a climate scientist and I was talking about uh, some projects I was trying to imagine doing. And she said, wait a second, you really have to think on a large scale. You have to think at the scale of the city. And so as an individual artist, you're thinking, oh yeah, how do I do that? And that's one of the things that's really ended up interesting me so much about this watermarks project in Milwaukee, because we are, thinking at the scale of the city. We're starting with a, a, you know, a central beacon that can then uh, be the start of a network that spreads throughout the city. But I, I never would have started thinking that way without these conversations that I had uh, with Cynthia and her colleagues. So Mary, you know, I wanna um, know, 
how you found those collaborators. Sorry, Marlon, but how did you find those collaborators? How did you find the bar where all the scientists hung out? How did you figure that out? I was really lucky because uh, in 2009, the Earth Institute had a gathering of scientists and artists, people in the arts, because I think the scientists were really feeling frustrated that what they were doing wasn't getting out there. And so they, they had this gathering. And it was so important. I mean, I met some of the, you know, my key partners going forward at that. And that's what got me to start thinking in terms for Cydia's Living Lab as a place where I could help other artists meet scientists or other experts. I mean, we've ended up, since we're looking at issues of the environment, dealing with uh, scientists a lot, but uh, it can be historians or planners or you know people who have other kinds of experience. But it isn't that easy. There isn't the bar that you're talking about. That's my next business model. <laughs> well, I actually believe that cocktail parties where everybody can talk to everybody are a good way. In fact, you have to remove people from their audience sometimes to know what they really think. And it's been my practice to talk to people individually. And uh, uh, trust can be more easily formed when you, you know, a person can actually see you listening to them. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a type of uh, a follow up, either something preemptive or something that's kind of uh, a follow up to, you know, a, a, some type of uh, interface, you know, with a larger group. And then how do you how do you follow up? Uh, I mean, it's it's all part of the I think the process. Uh, because I mean, you're, you're trying to direct this towards some sort of outcome. Um, and, and at some point, ideas uh, need to be manifested. Then you, you have to make decisions and you have to put something on the table. You know, and you have to risk something, right? And uh, get feedback on that. Uh, and the feedback is what I think gets the buy-in uh, from folks, you know, when they're able to uh, give responses and then you respond in turn and, and you, kind of come to a level of understanding uh, to move the project forward. Uh, but very often it's, it's, you have to demonstrate that you're not just making commentary on something, but you actually have to demonstrate how that commentary is useful in and on this particular situation for these particular folk. And if you can do that, then I think the commentary, no matter how far-fetched it might be, uh, uh, becomes readily acceptable in many ways as long as you can demonstrate its usefulness. It's just merely commentary. Uh, it's tough for a lot of folks to buy into. I mean, there's a pragmatism uh, that we deal with, uh, both uh, in reality and philosophically, uh, that you know, we, it, we have to confront. And, and it, it isn't just words. I mean, it has, you have to, and that's how you build trust. If you, if you do what you say you're going to do, you know, out of this process, then you build trust, right? So. It, the words are they only get you so far, uh, and I think, I think in many ways it's uh, how do we how do we get the uh, I don't know, I, I guess how do we get the buy-in uh, uh, to and 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 that and the only way I know how to do that is just through some kind of exchange or dialogue and uh, developing a kind of trust that allows you to be vulnerable to one another, right, and to what each other have to say. You know, we we. Um 
I'm so appreciative of that point of view. We, in our earlier discussion, we did talk about collaboration and how collaboration, the best foundation for collaboration is to establish uh, common goals. And nature is part of that because nature, you know, there's the regulatory nature, but there's also our sense of what's appropriate to what's our mission, what's our, oh. as a designer, as a leader, as a scientist, we are responsible for representing the voiceless. Well, I mean, nature is, you know, for us is where most ideas begin, you know, in some way our response to ideas around place, ideas around uh, what nature gives us, both in terms, terms of uh, phenomena, you know, uh, micro processes as well as you know things that are not seen but things that are also seen so we're looking at the micro and and, and, the, and the macro uh, and being very careful careful observers uh, of place of nature in particular the textures the patterns uh, how it uh, how it's given to us and then how we want to represent it in some ways how we want to uh, intensify the qualitative. We deal in the realm of qualities uh, and uh, so we're always looking for the qualitative in nature and how we can engage that, intensify it with what's already there or bring together, bring qualities that may not exist in that condition to actually improve upon it, uh, it given whatever it is we're designing for. Uh, so the intensification of it uh, is something quite profound when you can achieve that. Uh, so That's, I, that I, is part of the usefulness of an architect, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, I was where I was going to go earlier was with Marty uh, about dealing so much in, in, in the quantitative. And increasingly, we're seeing a, a kind of intersection between the qualitative and quantitative and how you can present the value of the qualitative through the quantitative. Marty might can speak more to that, but I'm, I'm finding that more and more useful, especially when you get to collaboration or you get you're dealing with folks who are not in our fields, right, or in other uh, disciplines or the public lay folk. Uh, if I can uh, create a value proposition through the quantitative to get to the qualitative, that's probably usually a pretty good thing. Uh, Marty, you may want to speak to that more directly. Uh, yeah, I would respond to that. The, the quantitative is simply a vehicle to make sure the things that we want to work for the qualitative work. Qualitative talks about our values, our passions, our ideas. Those are the things that you can't measure very effectively and you certainly uh, can't compare very effectively. Uh, but what I can tell you is that, that, that I can't, do, I can't uh, realize a qualitative set of values about a watershed, an ecosystem, uh, even a field. Uh, when I say a field, I mean a plot of land if I don't have those qualitative values articulated. So, but once I have those articulated, then it's my job as the ecological engineer to do the quantitative work, to make sure that we reduce erosion, to make sure that we don't flood the system, to make sure that and as an architect, to make sure the building stands up to the forces that, are that it's exposed to. Those are all the quantitative parts. Those are simply the mechanics of achieving the qualitative. And do you, have you ever, Marty, found yourself in the position where you had to be the advocate for something like uh, absorptive landscapes? <laughs> I'm an engineer working with engineers. Even though I'm an ecological engineer, I'm a registered professional engineer. And let me tell you, what we're talking about is a new language for engineers. It's a new language that is not well 
manifest in the practice. And that is why it's so important that designers, that architects don't just throw the designs over the wall to the engineers for implementation. Because an effective collaboration means that both parties understand what the higher values are and all the thousands of decisions that have to be made in that quantitative realm to achieve the qualitative, to make sure that you don't let those thousands of decisions deviate your vision away from where, where your passions are, where the vision is. Uh, and otherwise you end up with the thing that you didn't want, uh, which you end up with a system that works, but nobody wants. And that's, I would say, most cities everywhere. What is that? What is that? A system that works, but nobody wants. Uh, pick a downtown most anywhere. Um, pick a suburban most anywhere. I mean, most of us don't like the way our cities make us feel. Most of us don't like the way uh, at, with, at the way our neighborhoods make us feel uh, because they're designed around uh, the uh, efficiency of, of delivering goods and services, utilities and waste and not human experiences. Yeah, it's We're very, very instrumental. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it becomes yeah, numbing, instrumental. Numb, numbingly instrumental uh, in many ways. I know in, in uh, uh, we're trying to overcome that in some ways in uh, St. Louis uh, with the, the whole, uh, the Brickline Greenway, you know, and again, we're moving east-west from the, the arts, the St. Louis Arts to Forest Park, and it's quite rich, but north-south, you know, in, often is landscapes of emptiness, you know, and, and, and where you don't find nature. And so how do you deal with emptiness uh, and, 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 and negotiate that? And everything can't be a public park. Uh, every everything can't be formalized. And so it is a it is a big responsibility to deal with. Imp now you're talking about emptiness, like in economic emptiness, like in Detroit. I'm 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 talking about there's, yeah. I'm talking about erasure, abandonment. Uh, I'm talking about exploitation. These are things that are realities. And you know what is the role of nature? So in some parts of the, in that east west we. Are, have landscapes that are actually memory landscapes, uh, landscapes of the whole region that are kind of concentrated in particular areas between, uh, you know, the, the, the sinuousness of the, the bike, you know, bridges and, and such that kind of, you know, leap over the King's Highway into the Forest Park and make this incredible threshold. And those are almost an extension or threshold of the park and very formalized. But yet when you move to the north, you know, uh, how do those, uh, those landscapes begin to solve more than one thing? They're not just to be looked at, they're to be experienced, to be used. Uh, how do they help activate local economies? Uh, you, know, um, you know, even if it's only two or three businesses, how, how, how does that improve upon it? So we've uh, thought about landscapes of play and recreation, you know, uh, where you bring in the bike, uh, you bring in the skateboards, you bring in uh, a variety of different types of recreational things to occupy these empty landscapes uh, and to re-articulate them and create new value propositions. I'm going to jump in because I see uh, Ray Gastel, one of our board members, wrote something referring to the uh, statement by uh, the Secretary General, which I think many of us were taking, uh, of the UN, many of us were taking note of today. And, um, you know, uh, his statement was, we must stop our war with nature uh, the, 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 and 
that science can tell us what we can do. And, you know, it's like, how do you take this huge problem and get people to take it seriously, our relationship to the natural world? And I want to just give a couple of set examples of how I'm trying to think about it when I'm doing my work. An early project that I did in the aughts of this century, uh, it was a project in Boulder, Colorado, where Boulder's at the mouth of a canyon, and uh, it's predicted that there's going to be a devastating flood, and it's not if it will happen, but when it will happen. And uh, we put up 125 six inch diameter blue dots on trees, on buildings, on bridges, throughout the central area of Boulder. And you could look from dot to dot and see a line, see the level of the projected flood. Now, you probably, as you were walking through the center of Boulder, hadn't paid that much attention to the contour of the land because the elevation didn't change that much. But once these dots were up, uh, you realized that sometimes they were ankle high and sometimes they were uh, 18 feet in the air. So all of a sudden, that predicted flood level became something that was real. It wasn't just something uh, that was outside of your experience that you couldn't imagine or that you read about as being a historical event. It was something that in terms of your own body, you could make sense of. So that's what I'm always looking for in the work that I'm doing, how to give people a way to relate to these issues. In Milwaukee, we're putting these markers, these stakes in the ground in communities to start conversations, uh, to say, look, this is gonna take time. We know it's not gonna be easy to take this in, to change the way you're thinking about these things, but, but let, let's start the conversation and keep it going right here. So you know, there are, um, let me give you a, a couple of examples. A, that was a perfect way. How we make things that are invisible, visible and how to give people a point of reference so that they can talk to other people about it. And sometimes we find ourselves as the leader or the designer being responsible for bringing things to the fore. You know, like it wasn't in our brief to respond to this COVID virus, but, and the client doesn't even know how to ask you to respond to it. And how as a profession can we or as collaborators, how can we be leaders in helping society respond to this threat? Marty, I'm curious. I mean, like, are there things that you can think of doing differently than you're doing now? The challenge we have is we're constrained by our own experiences and knowledge, by our own tools, our own minds. That's why it's so important that we interact with people who think so differently than us different cultures, different languages, different fields, different ways of expressing, because that's the only way you can break out of the prison of our own experience. It is a prison. It bounds us. But it is not easy. So, yes, what COVID has taught us is that we can live differently than we used to live. I haven't been on an airplane since January. I was, I'm a million mile, mile plus flyer. I used to be, I was on an airplane almost weekly for five years before that. 
and I haven't, and many of you have had the same experiences. We can live differently than we used to. We can make different choices and we can still prosper in that different life. So those are the sorts of things we're learning. I think what we're most, what we're most challenged by is developing this common sense of purpose. We may have 50 different ideas on how to get where we're going, but we have a common destination. That's something we can agree on and we can fight till the, the, till, till the, the sun comes up on how we get there. But we have to find our common purpose. And I can tell you that human prosperity is the common purpose we should be aspiring for. Human, not human wealth, human prosperity. We should free humanity from the tyrannies of hunger and poverty, and we should elevate human, the human spirit through the way we live, how we live, and where we live. Those are things we can do together. And those things, uh, we, you will, the, the, the 17 Sustainable Development Goals that the United Nations has, has pro, uh, proliferated do not talk about the environment predominantly. Most of the uh, 14 of those goals are about people and our lives together and how we live together. Now we understand we depend on the environment, we depend on water, the land, and the climate in order to ha achieve those. So if we put it in that context, then all of these things couple together. Technology is not our savior, but technology will resolve our climate challenge. It already is. Renewable energy sources are, are cheaper than conventional energy sources for power, electricity. Our transportation systems with electric vehicles is right on the heels of that innovation. We are not that far away from, and, and all of us are using LED lights now. 20 years ago, that was a myth that we could, we could actually light a building for such a, with, for 2% of the cost of lighting uh, 20 years ago. We're doing that today. So we will solve our greenhouse gas carbon budget challenge in our lifetime. We will resolve it. We will, it will, things will turn around and start getting better because of our collective will, but largely because, of because our collective will is driven technological innovations that we are all embracing. Well, so if that means societal collaboration, it's a different model. Aren't we supposed to have, I'm right, you're wrong, all of that. There's a middle ground. What's in the best interest of everyone? That's a question. Yeah, I, mean, it, yeah. it's, it's, no, I, I don't, I mean, I don't have a single answer to that. I just, I think it's, it's how we adapt together. I mean, uh, we're constantly adapting and that's part of how we evolve. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a bottom-up process, uh, I really believe. And, you know, you know, things as simple as how do I enter a building now? I'm rethinking all of that, you know. Uh, you know, just uh, how do I breathe? You know, how, you know, what's that like on an inside of a building versus the outside? I mean, some of this stuff is just common sense and hard to argue. Uh, and I, but I think it creates a sense of urgency. I mean, this kind of what I'm already imagining a more post-COVID scenario that, you know, things that we can agree on that uh, maybe 20 years ago we couldn't. I mean, I, I remember when the whole environmental movement came along to the resistance we would get uh, from, uh, you know, our stakeholders or from our owners. Oh, I don't want to deal with that. You know, whatever. now it's the opposite. You know, 15 years later, it's like, we got to deal with this. And, and so it's the same thing here. I, 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 people are resilient and they adapt. Uh, and if they don't, you know, they're just sort of left in the dust. Uh, and, it, you know, they just become the, you know, the, the loon on the corner shouting, 
you know, at the sky, you know, shaking their fist. I mean, I don't, I don't think most of us want that. And I, I think most people are, are pretty smart. I give people some credit uh, for, you know, when you get them and, and maybe one-on-one -on -one where they're not acting out, but how do we resolve a problem? How do we resolve this in a creative, qualitative, life uh, improving way? Uh, and then you can have a dialogue with them, uh, with folks. It's what we're having now and rethinking this uh, in some ways. And it's, uh, it's creating some very interesting conversations. But the key to it is not to act like nothing happened. You know, <laughs> you, you know something happened and we need to respond. As something's happening, we need to respond. I want and, some uh, people are, some people are asking about breakthrough moments. Is this, I mean, obviously this is a, a moment that changes the di dialogue and we need to consider things that weren't considered before. Um, I, let me just talk about uh, my breakthrough moment in kind of pivoting my whole practice as an artist. Um, I live uh, only a few blocks from the World Trade Center and uh, when 9-11, uh, when the event happened, um, the area that I was living in was totally devastated, of course. And I, for a few days, had to go uptown to the Upper West Side and stay, to stay with friends. And people were watching this event on television and uh, it, the, you know, they thought it was a terrible thing, but then they were sitting in cafes uh, and you know, life was kind of normal up on the Upper West Side, even though it was New York City. And I, I through that experience, I realized uh, how uh, empty media is, uh, how impossible it is to really convey experience uh, through the media. And the other thing that I became very convinced about was uh, the importance of um, having artists be able to be part of a response to uh, something like this terribly tragic event. And my assistant and I worked uh, in the studio, collaborated to come up with a proposal that would al allow people to come to the edge of the site, which changed constantly over, you know, about nine months. Uh, but to be able to come as mourners rather than as voyeurs. So we made these uh, receptacles that were replacing the two by four police barriers that you would usually find. They were pipes open at the top. And uh, I bring this up because I know, Zach, at a certain point you had said, isn't it uh, more expensive and doesn't it take more time to do collaborations? Uh, I think that there are some things that we have to realize are really essential for us to begin to change the way we do things. Yes, we have to come up with better ideas, technology. Yes, we have to come up with, but we have to be able to um, have human experience at the center of it, to be able to touch people in, uh, in really important ways. And 
the art part of things is always being cut off. And it was during that time of trying to deal with 9-11 or the design part of things often gets, uh, you know, cut out of the, uh, out of the cloth and just let's just do the basics. Um, there's, there's something that's coming with this addition uh, um, of uh, creating a, a human contact with the event or with the situation that we just can't ignore any longer. So um, that's kind of a long way of talking about why I don't think it, uh, you know, to, to start saying, isn't it more, uh, doesn't it take more time or isn't it more expensive? Um, I'd say these things are absolutely necessary. Yeah. I wonder, um, I mean, there's, there's this cultural circumstances that put us in a frame of mind to look at things differently. And then there are design situations that cause us to focus on things. And I wondered, I'm kind of intrigued by um, Marty's Resiliency Center as a place where different kinds of and professional people come together in an environment that's not, I don't know how would you, it's not a charrette, it's an opportunity. What would you say? I would say that unfortunately in our academies, in our universities, we are still project bound. Uh, and so just like any of your uh, practices, you're project bound. And so our ability to create these collaborative moments is often limited to, to the project. Don't waste the project. That means the project is the currency of collaboration. Find a way, even if it's on the very margins, to, to, to build that collaborative option opportunity in as many times as you can. Now, as, as a university, we, are, we have the luxury of, this, of creating those projects, those opportunities, and that's what we created our Resiliency Center for that, that intersection of arts, humanities, design, um, and problem solving. But I can tell you that we're not novel in that sense. Those sorts of centers have emerged across universities, public and private, across the, the globe, not just in the US, across the globe, because we now understand that we can't solve the problems through our disciplines that we're facing. They're too complex, they're too uncertain, they're too chaotic. We can't solve these problems with our even sort of uh, interdisciplinary framing. We have to achieve a metadisciplinary framing in order to address these complex uh, challenges that are just going to, they're going to define the well-being of humanity in the next hundred years. We're at that cusp, guys. It's 100 years. We're peaking population in the next 100 years. We're peaking resource extraction in the next 100 years. We're peaking climate in the next 100 years. This, that's how urgent this is. So, the, um, um, of course, you're working together at the uh, E.F.A. Jones Center on Architecture and Design, which is an effort to breed, instigate, provide opportunities for collaboration among the disciplines. And uh, I think it's quite noteworthy because it's explicit. And uh, I don't know, would you like to talk about the academic um, 
foundation for collaboration in new professionals? Certainly, the, the, to be interdisciplinary, you have to first be disciplinary. So the best thing you can be as a collaborator is an expert in your thing, in your thing. And then you learn to develop expertise in other people's things and other disciplines things. Be the best expert in your thing you can be, whatever that is, hydrologist uh, and engineering, uh, transportation or uh, structures design architecture. I don't care. Be the best at that you can be. Be competent in that beyond words. Be competitively competent there. And that's what makes you a valuable collaborator. Now, it is hard to develop that level of competency and, 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 and expertise uh, with, the, with a collaborative passion because you're distracted every moment by other choices. But I would say be disciplined enough to stay within a discipline until you've mastered that discipline. And then bring that discipline to your partner disciplines. It's the dance metaphor again. You got to learn to dance yourself before you can dance with someone else. And then you can learn to dance together. So, so the, um, this is process. Um, I wondered if um, we can offer final words to um, Marlon and Mar Mary. Well, uh, you know, obviously this is a conversation that could, that could go on, you know, for a bit. Uh, but I, I think this whole notion of collaboration for me really centers around opportunity uh, and how you create opportunity. Um, there's a certain agency that we're uh, much more involved in than we were before. Before, I, in, I think in uh, the design disciplines and a lot of disciplines, you sit back and wait and you let things come to you. Uh, now I think we're in a position where we have to create our own opportunity. Uh, and that means opening up and that means bringing more folks in. I agree hundred percent with what Marty said. You have to have something to bring to the table first. Uh, but then, you know, you, you have to be open to other possibilities from other experts as, as well, uh, working towards a common goal. And that's what we've been really active in lately. Again, as I said earlier, I came to this rather late and was induced more through an economic crisis, more than an environmental one or a cultural one or whatever, to have to rethink how one practices, how one generates opportunities uh, and adapt and change. Let me just say that uh, this decade of work at the City is Living Lab uh, with all the wonderful people I've worked with, we've learned so much. Uh, this uh, collaboration is absolutely at the heart of what we do. Uh, it's collaborating with people like Marty or Marlon or the community members we work with. And uh, the thing we're trying to do is constantly discover the best way to do that. And uh, I've really enjoyed listening to you two tonight. And I look forward to working with both of you sometime soon, get, getting you to come and come to Milwaukee yeah. and work with us. Well, I think we have a project to work on together here soon too, so. That's true, that's, that's true. That's true, yeah, yeah. One of the recurring themes has been about, well, you know, does collaboration take more time? And then the other kind of question is about, well, our work is project-based and how do you make your work solve the larger problems? And one of those things might be about just demonstrating that it's possible. Yep, 
I, I would like to add to that, Charles. Uh, wouldn't it be fun if you hosted a sort of a, a collaboration, uh, eventually sit in, but, but now sort of dial in or whatever this is, uh, log in, where we create, we just, we just show each other how we collaborate by collaborating on a project. Now, it's, I hate to use the word charrette because it's really not quite that, but it's suppose it get a bunch of us together and say, here, you've got this moment uh, together. Figure out how you're going to collaborate together. Let's see what works and what doesn't work. You got two hours. Make it happen fast. What comes out of it? And then come back. And, and so you spend a, a half a day with willing and, and available people to figure out if you're willing to, what, to learn what does and doesn't work in that process. We use a, a process like that in ecological engineering to teach engineers how to think ecologically, to bring ecologists and engineering together. And what we do is we pose a problem. We have a watershed that has erosion and pollution and all these other problems. How can we solve this and also enhance ecosystem services, habitat, and other things? Yeah, a hackathon. Thank you, Ms. Chen, a hackathon. That's exactly what we want uh, for this sort of approach. That's how we learn. The reason that's important is because we're not on somebody's payroll at that moment. We're not burning the clock or more importantly, burning the money to do it. And so we can learn to do this on our own nickel in our own weekend or own evenings in a way that's less stressful. And more open-ended, I might ask. To work towards a product, is there a way to kind of set up your collaboration where you do say we're gonna work towards these goals that might be beyond the project goals established by the client? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, that's what I, that's the meta project, right? Uh, you have a, you have a project that's based in the practice or, you know, that has a narrow set of goals, but I think you should always have a meta project, a larger set of principles, a larger set of goals that every project is folded into in some ways. So one of those um, a good project examples is this um, cradle to career campus where you have a particular age group that you're responsible for, but you're part of a group of yeah. people who are setting the stage for a career. Right. I mean, that would be uh, the project we're doing in Detroit for the Mary Grove College, which is traditionally African-American college that has basically shut down through, a, you know, a kind of an attrition over time. And so the Kresge Foundation that's kind of bought into this campus and is repurposing it for a cradle to career, a P through 20, prenatal through 20 years old, where you uh, becomes both part of the community, uh, but also where students come to live, uh, work and grow. Uh, and we're responsible for in many ways, the cornerstone of this, which is early childhood learning, right? But we're, we're trying to think about how that extends to the overall campus, uh, it, how what material ideas that are associated with that, spatial ideas, uh, ideas around uh, learning and the senses, uh, all of that it ties into a larger uh, project that we're working on in the office, right? Uh, that deals with, uh, you know, uh, the tactility uh, uh, and the material culture uh, uh, of things, uh, of places. Uh, and so this ties into that in this particular uh, community uh, in Detroit. So, uh, you know, 
the meta project I think is very important. I think if, you, if you're just zoned in on a per project, per project, per project, uh, you have to learn how to begin to tie these things together, right? So that ideas feed off of other ideas and you, you repeat ideas, you, and that's how you develop them. It, it, every idea isn't a one-off thing. It's something that uh, it, it is achieved over time. It's, you know, you build depth to the breadth of ideas. And the way you do that is to, to keep folding them in and folding them in because the project then is, to, is a vehicle towards the larger meta project, uh, your larger goals. And I think that's something you can do in any practice uh, uh, to make it, I think, much more vital uh, and have much more agency in it. Now, um, is this building built yet? Are the children involved? It is, un it is under construction, and uh, it has been a it has been a, an amazing uh, collaboration. We've been challenged every step of the way uh, uh, by the the foundation, by the community, uh, to come up with something that you know falls outside very often what we're not used to dealing with: material, color, uh, you know, just uh, the way we use light, uh, and we begun to synthesize all of that into something that's very specific to that place, but part of our larger effort that still deals with issues around profile and silhouette and, and you know, uh, the body experience, you know, relative to the body. So uh, it's, uh, it's a, it will be completed in March, uh, to, to, to be exact, but does it's the, pretty, does pretty the, amazing. Does the work include the parents? Are there social settings for? Yes, yes. Although I have to say that we weren't as involved in that, uh, but they sort of rolled things out that we were working on to get their feedback and we would make adjustments. Uh, but they, be, you know, the, the foundation really also became the, uh, helped interpret the feedback that they got. Um, and so, you know, this is our first polychromatic building uh, that is really based in G's Bend quilts, you know, the whole uh, notion of how color in the ooh, am I still can, am I still on? Yeah. yeah. So this idea of a building with a coat of many colors and you know, and and starts to begin to respond to the diversity of the community. Uh, they absolutely did not want a single material or did not want a single color or any of that. They they wanted something that really spoke to that, which was something we'd never done before. Uh, so we're using terracotta, you know, it had to be resilient, durable, uh, something that would match up to the collegiate Gothic uh, stone uh, of this, uh, you know, 19th, uh, early 20th century uh, campus. So here we are in the 21st century trying to deal with those ideas around timelessness and durability and, and color, you know. So it's, it's been an amazing experience and uh, I was just up there my first time on a plane, as Marty was saying, I've been on a plane in Feb since February was two weeks ago to see it, and it's, it was it was jaw dropping to see what's uh, what's happening. So we have great hopes. Do you do you think that um, people from outside of the school will be come be influenced by this community? Uh, that that is the intention of the Kresge Foundation is for it to be a flagship uh, 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 institution for childcare throughout Detroit. And so it, it will kind of model, it'll be the, uh, I don't know, what do you call it, the Cadillac version uh, of, 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 of childcare or prenatal early childhood development, because, you know, that is so critical to 
uh, strengthening communities, right? Uh, the key to all of this is education. The problem in Detroit right now is that, you know, all the hipsters move there and they're all coming and they love it. And the moment they start having children, they all move out to the suburbs, to Gross Point or wherever. And how do you keep people in? And it's, it's through education. It's through building a bio uh, uh, education system. And so this, these early childhood learning centers are the keys, keys to that they believe. So. so that is a perfect example of a meta project. Absolutely. Which is to deal with the impoverishment in particular uh, building types, right? And, and, and education, uh, I think, is one of the most impoverished building types in the country. Well, it's magical. I mean, I've, we've seen it time and time again, recently. Mm -hmm. Artistic projects change the character of a neighborhood because they give people a different way to think of themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think the idea is, uh, you know, to present buildings that are dealt with care, thought, dignity, uh, and respect. They instill that. Uh, and um, I think people get it. People are smart. And that's, I think, uh, too often in our discipline, we underestimate who we're actually working uh, with and for. Uh, and I think they, people sense the care, the craft, the fidelity, the thought that comes through in structures like these. And, uh, I, well, I, will, I just think it's an opportunity to comment on the, the difference between the um, architect as genius and the architect as leader or collaborator and insisting on responsiveness to all yeah. the forces that needed to be responded to. So the, yeah. so the ecolo ecological forces, the social forces, the yeah. sense of what's prosperity. Yeah, I, I mean, it, I used to think of architecture as that we authored things, but more and more we're authoring processes by which things are made. Uh, and, and what are those processes of inquiry or, uh, you know, how do, how do we develop ways to be more inclusive to get to more deeper, richer uh, solutions, so to speak, and more enduring solutions? It was like a soup that we've had on simmer, and I feel like we've ended up in a really good spot here in that as, a, as an architect, as a designer, as an artist, as a scientist, working towards a process that solves the meta project is a is certainly a worthy goal and it's, it's within our grasp and i will also point out that sometimes we don't really know the power of what we've done and and small things and individual projects and make a difference because they change the societal uh, perceptions and give other people things to talk about that they wouldn't have necessarily known to talk about before um, now let's see, Olivia. Yes, uh, Charles. I just want before before no, not on me. Um, I before we uh, sort of go to the treat at the end. Um, I I think that what uh, Marlon was just talking about uh, addressed a question that uh, Ray had posed earlier, and and that was really to uh, ask for our our panelists to talk about some breakthrough moments. And uh, Mary shared a couple of really uh, brilliant examples. Um, and I was wondering if Marty would be able to, um, to join in and, and describe to us in, you know, a specific example uh, of, of how uh, the collaboration has really transformed a project and, and brought you to a new place. 
Certainly. And uh, I shared the link in the comments section with Ray for the University of Arkansas Community Design Center, which is co-located. That's the, the design, the architecture design outreach uh, program with the Faye Jones School of Architecture to the state of Arkansas, the region, the world. And we're co-located. My office is, we actually busted a hole in the wall between our offices. So we share a conference space with the Resiliency Center. Um, we were working with the city of Conway, Arkansas, on, a, uh, on an EPA nine element watershed plan. Nothing could be more boringly engineering than that. And we were doing this because it was a prerequisite for the city of Conway to be qualified to receive EPA subsection 319 monies. Talk about boring, but <laughs> in order to do watershed management. So we we're working with them on that. So I started work, so I asked Steve Luoni, the director of the community design center, I said, Steve, what do you think about this? He said, we need to create a language for watershed management for city managers so that we have a common language here and let's work with this and we'll do the design work that it communicates in uh, an expressive form the way to, to make that so that we can see problem scapes and solution scapes and so we created this language based upon our experience with low impact development uh, work together again we've been collaborating now for 20 years and so it was a fairly easy thing to do but over a period of four years, four years, we worked with the city of Conway, Arkansas to analyze all of their problems. Now, as an engineer, I knew what their problems were, and I've been telling them this for years, what the problems were. But until we had that, that expressive way of, cap, of framing the issues in a, in, a, in a universal language, universal language of images, of, of images that used uh, archetypes for expressing challenges and problems, we would not we we could not get through and actually motivate action that document changed the way they thought about their city and even through multiple administrations it's still a guiding document for how they're planning and managing their watersheds and by the way they can also access clean water Act section 319 funds from epa now and so it worked and so that was a transformational moment for me and i thought i've been working with these guys for at that point 15 years i thought i pretty much understood the power of the work that was a surprise how much it elevated the impact of the work. And that's all plan, that's all the architecture and design. That's all that was. I'm so glad we had this time together. And I, I hope that everyone will continue to stay engaged and uh, continue to send us questions and we'll, we'll feed them to Marty and Marlon and Mary and good night.